from India's largest newsroom, I'm Arun George, and this is the Times of India podcast. When we did this interview in 2021, lawyer Saurabh Kirpal had been waiting for his elevation to become a judge for three years. A year later, not much has changed for the senior advocate. Despite the Supreme Court clearing his appointment as a High Court judge in 2021, the appointment is still to be cleared by the central government. Kirpal is one of the multiple appointments on hold as the government raises doubts about the existing collegium system of appointing judges to the higher judiciary. The Supreme Court, in turn, has expressed its displeasure about the appointments of judges being put on hold. But in spite of the appointment being on hold all these years, Saurabh Kirpal hasn't withdrawn his consent to be appointed a judge. Here's our interview with Saurabh Kirpal, in which he's in conversation with Meenal Baghel. The April 20th hearing in the Supreme Court on the rights of marriage for same-sex couples has also brought to center stage another issue of queer rights. And this one is quite close to the judiciary itself. In late 2017, the Delhi High Court, where Saurabh Kripal is a senior advocate, proposed his name for elevation to the bench. What would have been a simple appointment has now become a much-written-about matter in the media. Kripal, a successful advocate, is gay, and if his elevation were to be confirmed by the Collegium, he would become the first openly queer judge in the senior judiciary where lack of diversity has been an issue. Supreme Court and High Court judges are appointed by a system of collegium. Simply put, a panel or a collegium of High Court judges propose a candidate's name to the Supreme Court, which then, if it approves, forwards the name to the law ministry. The law ministry, in turn, may either forward the name to the President of India for his final approval or send the candidate's name back to the Supreme Court to reconsider. If the highest court reiterates the name of the candidate, the government is bound to respect the Supreme Court's suggestion. Saurabh Kirpal is among 18 of the 23 candidates whose names are pending with the Collegium for long. On four occasions, the Supreme Court Collegium has deferred taking a final call on Saurabh's appointment. Last month, Chief Justice of India, S.A. Bobri, who retires on April the 23rd, wrote to the law ministry to clearly specify what is it that the government objected to about Kirpal's elevation. In our interview of the week, we speak to Saurabh Kirpal on the objections to his proposed elevation as High Court judge, why he believes this has to do with his sexual orientation, and whether the Supreme Court of India should necessarily be a counter-majoritarian institution. So uh, what leads you to believe that the delay in your appointment as High Court judge has to do with your sexual orientation? There's a direct reason and an indirect reason. The direct reason is one of the judges who formed part of the collegium has come out on record and said so. Justice Madan Lokar, I was doing a, a session with him at the Jaipur Festival and he, the same question was posed to me at that point of time, saying, what evidence do I have to show that my sexuality was the reason why the decision was deferred? Uh, he jumped in and said, and he was part of the collegium which first deferred it, said that, yes, the sexuality was definitely one, one reason that it was, in fact, the main reason. And the reason that has ostensibly been given 
And this is something we have to guess because the whole process of appointment of judges is shrouded in opacity, right? No one really knows what happens. It is some kind of a intelligence bureau report that is given, uh, which is not made public, often for good reasons, but generally I think it ought to be discussed in public. But be that as it may, it appears in my case that it is because my partner of uh, 20 years now, we've been together 20 years, is a foreign national. And since the government cannot investigate him any further or the intelligence bureau cannot investigate him, it is not possible for them to determine as to whether or not he will be a security risk. Now, this automatically ties into my sexual orientation for the simple reason. And of course, it does not amount to a proposal to my partner. But if we were straight, I have no doubt we would have been married a long, long time ago, right? If there was gay marriage in this country, we would have been married a long, long time ago. We live in a joint family with my parents, right? So we're as close to uh, a marriage as can be without the actual marriage. Now, if that had happened and I was married to my partner, then obviously I presume there would be no allegation of fear of what is a security risk because after all, the foreign minister of this country today has a foreign wife. It's not as though having a foreign spouse is automatically a security risk. It's only because I happen to be a gay person who cannot, by virtue of the lobbying, what it is, get married to the person of my choice, that that person suddenly becomes a security risk. It baffles me as to what is the possible uh, state secret that will come to the knowledge of a judge of the high court, which will make anybody uh, a security risk, let alone the partner. But I think it's, it's fair that the Intelligence Bureau investigates. But this reason sounds so specious that the direct reason that I had given you of Justice Locker saying what he does makes me believe what I said. Have there been queer judges uh, in the Supreme Court or in the, uh, in the high courts in the past? There has been no judge who has been openly queer who has donned the office of a judge in the higher judiciary. It defies logic that there will not have been some people who were in the closet, either they were single or they were not married. Uh, but I think, you know, that kind of defeats the point as to why is this question even being raised? Was this question asked to the first woman when she became a high court judge that were there women before you? No, they clearly were not. And that was an historic injustice that had to be remedied. So while I cannot answer, and I, I know where you're coming from as to whether there have been openly or closeted queer judges, it's not for me to come out and say one way or the other. A very simple answer to that would be that whether they were or not, given the fact that prior to 6th December 2018, Section 377 criminalized uh, same-sex relationships, it is unlikely that there would have been any openly queer judge because that would have been to make an unconvicted felon a person in charge of convicting for felonies, right? So that was highly unlikely to happen. So it's really post 6th September 2018. And my first deferment, if I may point it out, uh, was on the 5th of September 2018, one day before the judgment. That was deferment number one. And they've been thereafter subsequently then in January, then in April, then in uh, March again. So that is a simple answer to what you said is that they probably were, but they couldn't be out because of the fear of the law. You're a successful lawyer from a privileged family. What is your motivation to give up practice and move to the bench? Look, I have been a successful lawyer. I come from an extremely privileged background. 
uh, there is no denying that I come from, I'm a person of means, not only because of what I've accomplished, what my, uh, the good fortune of birth has given me as well. And I think with that comes a greater responsibility on my part to try to fight for those people who do not have the same means as me. Uh, it's very easy for me to say that, and I say things like uh, someone who is queer owes it to come out, owes it to fight on behalf of the community. But it's not easy for everybody to do that. If you are concerned about whether you'll be ostracized, you'll be thrown out of your homes, uh, you will face a, face a whole barrage of societal discrimination. It's not easy for you to come out and fight. So the onus then is greater on those people who have the wherewithal to fight. I must give some part of voice to the voiceless and fight for the oppressed, the marginalized. That's also the same point. I'm not becoming a judge only for queer people. That's one very small part of it, right? I believe that successful lawyers generally across the country must become judges because it's only with a strong judiciary that we will have the rule of law. This is not about men, women, queer, straight, upper caste, lower caste. And if the courts are not peopled, I would say now, by judges who have the necessary empathy, then I don't think we can complain any longer. And unlike a lot of other people, I have great faith in the system. And the reason I have faith in the system is because people like me have given back to the system and, and therefore I owe it. It really is a debt that I'm repaying for all that I have gotten. To the layperson outside, it seems that sometimes there is dissonance within the Supreme Court. On Section 377 itself, for example, the Supreme Court in the Koshal versus Nas Foundation case first overruled a Delhi High Court judgment and then a few years down the line, the same Supreme Court read down Section 377 and decriminalized homosexuality. How do you explain this? Now that you have 34 judges, currently, of course, the strength is less than that, and you have benches of two or three judges which sit in here individual cases, it is evident that there are, there are 11 separate benches which are setting off to one Supreme Court they're going to have 11 different points of view. And they realize that it is really a system based by individuals dispensing justice with their own understanding of what the constitution is. People can have bona fide differences on what their perception is of what the constitution actually says or what a law actually says, depending on their own uh, upbringing, their own ideas, their own... Uh, uh, they, they bring a whole lot of baggage when they decide a matter, right? The, the judges as is inevitable as anyone. So when you have different benches of the Supreme Court, you will have different perspectives and hence different verdicts. So while the institution is one, the Supreme Court, given the fact that it's manned by, and I, I use that deliberately manned by, because there is only one woman in the Supreme Court today, manned by uh, judges of different views, you're going to have different judgments. The same issue can give a diametrically opposite by the same Supreme Court, depending on one bench or the other, as we saw in the Porsche case. And this is not something that is new, uh, you know, let me say that it's also a question of time and passage of time. For instance, if you were a tenant in the 1980s and you went to the Indian Supreme Court, you were guaranteed to get a judgment in your favor. If you're a landlord today with the same very law and you go to the Supreme Court, you are guaranteed to get a judgment in your favor. So there is a certain amount of this which happens at passage of time naturally. What is 
difficult this time is that there are so many cases that come to the Supreme Court and there's so many judges that there is often a discordance between different benches. Uh, one may not know as to uh, what another bench has decided. Now, that is uh, deeply problematic, not because of anything other than some sure timing of it. So there is no ad hocism. Following the reading down of the Section 377, has there been a change of attitude in the higher judiciary? I think uh, at least the higher judiciary is not an illiberal place. Given the training that you get as a lawyer in the constitution and your experience as a judge, your tendencies tend to be liberal. It doesn't always seem that way. Not every judgment that comes out appears that way. But the general arc, I would say, is towards liberalism. And, and you know, it's something your, your listeners should know. It's very easy and it is common these days for uh, people to point fingers at judges of the higher judiciary and make statements. But that's not, that, I don't believe that to be the case. And I think this judgment, which was a charter of rights for the queer community, backed by the moral authority of the Supreme Court, which enables to express their latent, if not patent, uh, liberal ideologies. And they have become, I think, more sensitive in the higher judiciary. And I was giving you the example of my own designation as a senior advocate, which happened recently. And all 31 judges of the Delhi High Court voted to designate me as a senior counsel. Now, I think back of 15 years ago, when you had asked me the question earlier about whether there were many queer judges before me, there weren't many queer lawyers before me either. Forget a judge. There were very, very few people who were queer and out in the legal fraternity, or indeed, if you remember, in most public spaces. But is it an issue that you feel judges are still grappling with? Justice uh, Anand Venkatesh of the Madras High Court recently said, while hearing a petition about a same-sex couple, and this is what he said, I'm trying to break my own preconceived notions about this issue, and I'm in the process of evolving and sincerely attempting to understand the feelings of the petitioners and their parents. What are your thoughts when you hear something like this coming from a high court judge? I think it's very, very heartening, surely. Uh, we can ask nothing more of a human being or a judge, and not that the two are distinct, but of any human being is but to have some empathy in their heart and love in their heart and try to consider the position, right, of another individual. When that human being ends up being a judge, it is their constitutional obligation to uh, decide on the basis of that empathy. Article 14, which grants equality to every citizen of India, indeed every person living in India, requires that, that the judge try to understand the perspective of that particular individual. So it's very uh, heartening to see that judges are grappling with it. Uh, Rome was not built in a day, right? And this is something I've said before, is that our constitution guaranteed equality for women in 1950. Judges are grappling with what that equality means even today. See, for instance, the judgment in, of Justice Chandrachud in the uh, commissioned officers in the army. 70 years later, what equality means is being discussed and they're trying to discover what equality means for them for women, uh, a subject which is not otherwise taboo. So the same process of examination of your own beliefs, prejudices, ideas, ideals, is, I suppose, part and parcel of the higher judiciary in matters relating to sexuality as well. You said elsewhere in an interview, and I quote, 
It's the role of the Supreme Court as the guardian of the constitutional rights of minorities and other communities to be counter-majoritarian. Do you think the Supreme Court views itself as thus? There is a liberal streak to our judiciary, but that may not be enough because our constitution, nevertheless, is completely out and out a liberal document, right? The idea of giving rights to an individual to be trumped in the face of tyrannical majorities is a counter-majoritarian idea. The idea that I can do what I want to, regardless of what laws made by parliament, regardless of what the majority says, and to give me a constitutional remedy, i.e. go to the courts, and most importantly to the Supreme Court, shows that the constitution itself is a very liberal document, and the right of the individual trumps that, really, of the largest of majorities in our country. Now, as to whether the Supreme Court sees its role as such, I think every judgment you read, they will say that their role is that of being counter-majoritarian. The question whether they've always fulfilled that, that is up for debate, I think. There have been notable instances when they've not done so. I would say, by and large, the problem with the court it's not that they don't come to the defense of, uh, say, free speech. It's that they come to the defense of it with its own delays and its own uh, process of justice being followed, right? So, for instance, when you are a person who is being imprisoned for making a statement which is violative of your Article 19 1A free speech rights, I have no doubt that 10 years down the line, the Supreme Court will give a shining verdict saying that that was a wrong act. You don't need a judgment of the Supreme Court 10 years down the line to preserve your free speech. You need an action there and then by some judicial authority, be it the lowest of judicial authorities, to come to your aid. And that is where I think the problem lies. It's not in the dispensation of justice eventually. It's in the speed of delivery of justice as and when you need it is the problem. Today's episode was originally produced by Jairaj Singh and Joshua Thomas. Today's version of the episode has been edited by Sunay Marathi. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at tuipodcast at timesinternet.in.